Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is, you guessed it, another can episode. That's why I label them as such, so there are no rude surprises. Especially when the guest is Mark Ash. <laughs> hello, Nick, and hello, all of you beautiful people. It's great to be here on the Terrace of Journalists at the 75th Cannes Film Festival in Cannes, France. Thank you for the um, absolutely accurate date stamp. And when you say Terrace of Journalists, I imagine that somehow we're in a human pyramid and we're just standing atop 30 <laughs> journalists that are barely keeping us up. There, there was a human pyramid at Cannes this year. Wait, I where? In a film you've already discussed on this podcast, at the at the at a triumphant human pyramid and ode to um, low-budget filmmaking, Coupe. Ah, that's right. Yes, though that's that's. But it's good to remember the, the pyramid. So we are in the thick of it uh, at this point, and I think probably we'll be talking about a movie that's pretty anticipated, given that the director's last film, The Square, won the Golden Palm here, and Triangle of Sadness is also. A sort of mysterious title. Also a pyramid. Also a pyramid, yeah. And I, you know, I have to say that I did not know it was a technical term or a term of art. I don't even know. Maybe that's just made up, perhaps. But Mark, you've you've seen this movie. I have seen this movie. Triangle of Sadness, I assumed, was one half of this, the square, which has been bisected uh, at a ni- <laughs> 90 degrees into a triangle of sadness and a triangle of gladness, and that this is the first half of a diptych. I don't believe that's the case. I believe, I don't think that Ruben Austin is currently at work on a triangle of gladness. However, (laughs) this is a film about many things that are very relevant to audiences here at the Cannes Film Festival. It is about the fashion industry and personal branding and transactional relationships within entertainment. Mm. It is about luxury boats. (laughs) It is about class and gender. It's it's kind of a cosmic gumbo, but primarily the main root of it is that these two young model influencer types played by Harris Dickinson of Beach Rats. Yes. He was one of the titular Beach Rats mm-hmm. and his sort of girlfriend, although they don't seem to like each other very much, <laughs> and, she's, and she is more, more successful in the fashion industry than him. Yaya, played by Charles B. Dean? I'll go with that. An actress new to me. Mm-hmm. They, in an effort to demonstrate that they have a real relationship and not mm-hmm. just an Instagram relationship, go on a luxury cruise on a boat that was a real boat that's in the film. It was, in fact, uh, formerly owned by Aristotle Onassis, I just read on the internet. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, it was Aristotle a- a- Onassis Super Yacht. And on this boat, they sort of begin to, they are integrated into. The film is in three chapters, and the first chapter sort of sets up their relationship. And in the second chapter, they are sort of integrated into this luxury yacht milieu mm. where um, there are it's there is sort of an some upstairs downstairs relationships between crew and passengers. There are a lot of very colorful, very rich, very unappealing passengers. Yeah, and some and some barely more appealing staff who are seem to have been very committed to their role as enablers of of gross wealth mm-hmm. and so these class relations become increasingly acute i would describe the film as vulgar marxism in that somebody quotes karl marx well during a montage of people puking and shitting themselves so mm-hmm. it's among the it's some of the most vulgar marxism we've ever seen the gross wealthy emphasis on the gross I, I thought uh, I thought of the Terry Jones going to the restaurant scene in Monty Python's The Meaning well. of Life, and it is very much. So it is sort of it, this is sort of the climax of the second part, and then in the third part there is sort of like 
there's a disaster at sea and we end up in sort of like a Jack London, the open boat situation. Mm-hmm. If you've read that short story in which class relations as existing on the ship are sort of rejiggered and inverted mm-hmm. in a in a survival scenario. Yeah. I mean, an, another comp, another comparison would be Gilligan's Island. <laughs> um, this is sort of a cross between the open boat and Gilligan's Island. And I think that for me, as someone who did not particularly think that the square was brilliant satire, mm-hmm. although I thought it was a funny comedy of bourgeois manners in the style of force majeure, I, th- I, I, I enjoyed Triangle of Sadness. I had a good time with it. I thought it was funny. I think that this isn't, I'm trying to make a distinction between satire and farce. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is maybe a farce. Also, I should add that the force majeure, since I mentioned it, it reminded me, Ruben Austin said frequently that that was, that that film was inspired by the captain of the co- captain coward the captain of the costa concordia who abandoned yes. ship uh-huh. as it was sink- uh, who abandoned his cruise liner as it was sinking and this film has a different i would say a much more righteous captain figure although he is flawed and <laughs> i would say he's also flawed played by the wonderful woody harrelson yes. who finally emerges from his drunken stupor in his in his cabin to join the guests for dinner and Oh, what transpires. Yes. And yeah, speaking of vulgar, vulgar Marxism, I have not really watched a lot of this program, but I, for some reason, thought of Below Decks <laughs> as well. I haven't either, but yeah. I mean, but there are people who are just absolutely submerged in it. So I, I have to wonder if that's on his mind as well, because Ruben Ostlin does seem like the sort of director who draws on a lot of influences. And just interviewing him once, I remember he just loves YouTube and... For example, Force Majeure was also just a YouTube clip he had seen of, of an avalanche <laughs> and people reacting to it. So, yeah, who, who knows what else goes into this one. I am inclined to agree with uh, what you're saying, that at least parts of this are, are not satire and are more farce, and that it, it doesn't have the kind of clean structure, although it kind of outwardly looks like it might, but it doesn't have that kind of structure to it of, of a satire. Did you already mention what happens in the third act or are we keeping that off limits i mean i think we can elaborate on that yeah i think that this is a safe space for spoilers these are true these are true true church cinephiles out there <laughs> i think it totally is because i just remembered that i actually expected the third act to happen sooner because it was part of the original plot summary that was going around which is that a bunch of people get shipwrecked and the the power relations shift from what you what they used to be so that was that was not a surprise when all of that started happening there's also the first part, which is this couple and a kind of very tightly scripted and tightly timed repartee and sparring between them over, I mean, what is kind of stand-up material uh, about you know dating and gender roles, but has a certain tang to it mm-hmm. still. And I think that's Austin's kind of skill is to revisit things that perhaps are familiar, but give it a little frisson. I think I think he effectively does that. Um, so that's kind of the overture. The weird thing for me is that by the time we're in the rest of the story, that stuff was no longer really operative to me, which was sort of a pity, but maybe that's just my brain uh, running on not enough sleep. But yeah, I was happy to see Woody. Oh yes, he's, he's wonderful. I mean, I do think that they sort of, that that relationship dynamic, which the sort of stuff that they're fighting about is like, go to a restaurant the guy always pays type things and that does sort of that dynamic about gender and money and power and the sort of decorative function of people in relationships because they're both also sort of 
because they're both in the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Re does reemerge in the third in the third act. Although in the middle, yes, they're sort of more passive observers to a sort of new cast that is introduced. I I think it, it is an expansive film. I don't know if we mentioned that it's two and a half hours long, right. but it is two and a half hours long. It is two and, and a half hours that, long, and it's very and it's widescreen mm-hmm. and. There are a lot of luxury goods that are seen on screen that mm-hmm. I think are seem fairly luxurious. So it is a sort of it is an ambitious and hubristic film by a filmmaker who I think like begins usually from a place of like a very sort of succinct observation about class relations, about the sort of role of the sort of role of exploitation within within the luxury industry. Inevitably he's inevitably he's dealing with rich people because they're the easiest to make fun of. And so he begins from a place of a succinct relationship that we recognize the dynamics in and sort of pushes it first into a comedy of awkwardness and bad manners and, and social discomfort. And then with this one, I think, more successfully than in The Square, pushes it past a comedy of discomfort mm-hmm. into a sort of just openly contemptuous and scatological. Mm. And it's on a big canvas. And I, 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 so, yeah, so it worked for me. I don't think it told me anything that I don't know, but the two and a half hours flew by. The audience was into it. There are some yeah. there are some very fun performances in it. Not just Woody Harrelson, but a lot of the cast, a lot of the cast who play crew yeah. are very good. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and they're kind of pivotal uh, as well. And it's almost a matter of timing too. I don't know exactly when this movie was finished or or, or not, and, but I have a feeling that. Ostland was really well timed with the both Force Majeure and the Square. They just kind of hit the wave of what they were taking aim at uh, very, very well. This, I have to say, it kind of comes on the heels of a lot of like a lot of satire about you know inequality and flipping the pyramid and you know social Darwinism. <laughs> it it just comes into a landscape where a lot of that just by trial and error has has been I won't say exhausted, but you have to be absolutely at the top of your game, I think, to uh, to make it sharp. And, you know, you mentioned how long it was. I could have almost seen it, this sounds perverse, but I could have almost seen it longer because it had the feel of me in the last part of a movie that was almost hacked to bits. Not like because there were continuity problems or something, but I just felt like there was more there and somehow we were, the curtain was dropping. <laughs> I think I've heard that there was a three-hour cut, yeah. which I assume came out of mostly the desert island because that that is its own that is its own film yeah which is in a way a pity and i i would agree because i think that's where it could have been he could have kind of strut his stuff because the first part i feel is kind of easy for him it was funny uh, but kind of easy for him and the second part uh, i mean there's yeah there's the comic set piece at the center that is just terrific Mm -hmm. so the third yeah he almost kind of short short changes himself a little bit but you know that's that's life as as Sweden's leading satirist <laughs> or farcer. farcist farcer. Farcer, farcer. Um but yeah there's there's more to say and these are obviously sort of preliminary notes but yeah triangle sadness should we dis- should we should we stay on the nautical theme on the nautical theme that's good yeah uh, so that does that lead us to Ennis Main Ennis Main yes and we should explain why it's Ennis Main and not Ennis Men which is I assumed it was Ennis Men. I assumed it was. Yeah. I mean, I assumed because this is a, the second film by Mark Jenkins, the director of the really interesting first feature, Bait. Bait. Interesting for reasons that we'll talk about. Yeah. And so I knew because of Bait's setting, or I suspected because of Bait's setting, that this would similarly be Cornish dialect and 
concerns, and indeed it is. And I, but it is so. Ennis Main, spelled Ennis Men, is uh, means is Cornish for Stone Island. Yes. And so this is a sort of this is where your Cornish serves you well. I do have people from the south coast of England I, I, somewhere I, back know. in there. Uh, <laughs> Devon, though, not oh, okay. not Cornwall. The more you know. That's a little. That's a little Easter egg for you, yeah. uh, for you <laughs> listeners out there. Um, Hardcore ashheads. Yeah. This is th- those compiling a dossier. So Bait, uh, which was his first film, is a black and white film that is. He shot on a Bolex with unsynchronized sound, and he hand processed the film himself. And it is partly a story about the dying fishing industry and gentrification mm-hmm. on the south coast of England and partly also something of a supernatural story with lots of sort of silent film style intercut, very sort of stark symbolism with very practical effects. And this follows in that vein, I think even more so, it's shot in color. I believe he deliberately, I might be botching this, under uh, deliberately underexposed the footage extremely and then hand processed it. He usually, uh, he shoots without, with a very minimal crew. This is the primary cast member in this is his wife, Mary Woodvine, who's an excellent actress. And, mm-hmm. and she lives in a very remote part of Cornwall and goes about her daily rituals in this sort of accreting monologue of this incredibly beautiful, saturated Bolex footage. And it is sort of a ghost story, sort of a return of the press by the seaside town. I think a lot of people came into this expecting an English folk horror thing in the tradition of the Wicker Man or expecting like somebody's going crazy by the ocean in the style of the lighthouse. And this is much more of a somebody meant somebody invoked Maya Darren, which I thought was a great comparison. I can see that to to an an extent. Uh, I mean, I guess the word that came to mind as I tried to kind of like process the film was iterative. Mm. I mean, in the sense that, yeah, it's, it's not a movie that, uh, you know, hits, hits the marks and keeps going in terms of like, you know, haunt, haunted Isle or something. It kind of cycles through them is how it felt more. And the weird thing is, is it doesn't necessarily accrue more power or potency as it does that, I think, which I can't quite tell whether or not he, he, he intended that, but it more just felt like, a musical piece reaching some sort of, yeah, iterative crescendo. You know, it's almost like it's almost more glassian than you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, there is also ex- we we could say excellent music in the film. Yeah, mm-hmm. she lives as, as as part. She keeps a daily log. She goes about her business. She wears a a beautiful red raincoat that looks she does so red. It's redder yeah. than the raincoat and don't look now. I think. <laughs> and she for com- she turns on the generator also red, mm-hmm. and uses that to power a radio for which that we get scratchy messages from all across this like space and time space and time really <laughs> and the seas and we listen also to sort of some songs that are maybe in the sort of like re- religious christian hymns with a nautical theme mm-hmm. something like now i'm about to say it's just something about keep your lamps trimmed and burning which is the lyrics to a built to spill song but there <laughs> but is also yeah a song that's in this so there is this sort of choral aspect which speaks to maybe the film's interest in collective cultural memory it is 90 minutes long and every shot is marvelous and beautiful and i think that it doesn't as you as you say i think it doesn't necessarily he edits it towards a climax of increasingly fractured and subjective symbolism but it also it isn't really primarily about somebody living alone in an isolated environment and being driven mad by supernatural forces it is about the beauty of this imagery and landscape and the sort of joy in repetition of these 
yeah. of these images. And I think yeah. he's, a, he's a very interesting filmmaker, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but I also I, wonder where he goes now. Yeah. I, I, I imagine the next film could be quite different. So maybe you just kind of have to work through this this particular one. Because, it, yeah, it's really, in a way, it's ill-served by the um, horror expectations and, and, and horror beats that it actively courts. <laughs> mm-hmm. But... I do appreciate, yeah, the, the, the craft of the cinematography, the, the, the island, ah, the life of the scientific outpost on an island. One other thing I also appreciated is, is thinking of the word menier, which from Asterix and Obelix is, uh, for some reason, uh, in my head. So I see the entomology connection with Ennis Main. Ah. So I all learned an important lesson. Do you want to quickly talk about, just because I know it was a film that you did like, and while we're on the sort of coastal English coastal off the trip. coast yeah I will talk very quickly about After Sun which mm-hmm. um, which you'll all get a chance to see pretty soon it's getting a lot of very rapturous notices and will be appearing stateside I'm sure before the year is out mm-hmm. it's the first film by by Charlotte Wells who as an Irish filmmaker based in New York and came she's in she's in her 30s and came to filmmaking after other sort of academic pursuits Mm-hmm. And this is a very feels very personal. This is the autobiographical first feature. It is about a, all caps. Yeah, very very all caps. It is about a father and a daughter on vacation in Turkey. It is the 1990s, and the father, played by Paul Mescal. If you told me that there's a movie that there's a movie at Cannes where Paul Mescal plays a British person on holiday in the Mediterranean and in the 1990s, my mind would immediately go to Blur's Girls and Boys, that he's one of the, that he's one of the yobs in the discos at night, like <laughs> slamming down Uzo shots on like, a pa- on like an all-inclusive package tour. And there is a Blur song on the soundtrack, but it's not Boys and Girls. And Paul Mescal is not a, is not a lad on holiday. He is the young mm. father of an 11-year-old girl but young enough that there's maybe some confusion with roles in his own mind. Mm-hmm. So that's a 30-year-old father and 11-year-old daughter, and it's clear that this is the, that this is the weekend dad getting, being mm-hmm. primary caregiver for the one week out of the year. And the two of them have a wonderful relationship. Frankie Corio is the young actress's name, and she seems very intelligent and mm-hmm. able to sort of be, is aware of the way in which she is performing. The two of them have a camcorder, a new camcorder, right. and that really sort of speaks to the idea that this is a memory piece that they are sort of capturing these impressions that she is only really understanding later. If you do the math, yeah. if you do the math, she, the girl, Frankie is now her father's age when the film mm-hmm. takes place, more or less. And that plays into it a little bit. There are a number of references that I was talking through last night, potentially a little bit of early Lynn Ramsey in another, Medi- another Morven Collar being another great Brits on holiday in the Mediterranean yep. film. And... Um, I also thought of he has a cast at the beginning, Paul Mescal, on his on his forearm, yeah. having presumably broken it in a drunken incident. So, which is a very obvious echo of Sofia Coppola's Somewhere, mm-hmm. which I think is sort of the tone that the movie yeah. is going for, and I think actually succeeds in quite well. And then, as the two of them bond and have this relationship that is the stuff, the fodder for future memories, and is clearly the tip of the iceberg in terms of the relationship that they have and the things that they need to work through. Which and that sort of retrospective, incredibly open-hearted autobiographical perspectives comes through in too many endings, all of which are beautiful and incredibly moving. I thought there were at least five perfect 
last shots in this movie, <laughs> yeah. and I wouldn't have known which one to stop at either. So, right. yeah. and it really does. So it gives you a lot of the feels, and I think that's why people are responding to it. Yeah, it also just has a way of it. Maybe it's the way it happens too that it can kind of sneak up on you and with this kind of wistful ache, <laughs> but by by the end. So yeah, that's After Sun, uh, Charlotte Wells. I think we probably have time for one more film. So I'd like to just give the listeners some whiplash by jumping to an entirely different film. And that is a espionage thriller, political drama, but I prefer to take it mostly as an espionage thriller <laughs> in that that's the most intelligible facet of it, I think. Um, and that is The Hunt. Is it The Hunt or just Hunt? It is just Hunt, I it believe. It is just Hunt, yeah. So that is Hunt from the star of Squid Game. Lee Jung-jae, I think. So this is, a, this is a film that is set in the, I mean, almost like entirely within the South Korean government, kind of pitting two different departments, both concerned with national security, but from like the inside and the outside in a way, and both kind of pursuing similar goals, but at, at odds constantly and butting heads um, and, you know, having conflicting agendas and maybe cannot both exist in the same way or same space entirely. How would you try to? I would describe this as, well, first of all, I would say that while Netflix is famously not allowed at Cannes, you watch a movie like this and you realize it's a technicality that that this guy, that the uh, <laughs> filmmaker who is the star of Squid Game, that the, and that this will probably play, that this will probably end up, I, I think this will probably end up on Netflix very soon, and I think it will play well there. I would say, I would describe it as, it has echoes of a couple of fine Kevin Costner f- political thrillers from the late 80s and early 90s, uh, in the sense of being sort of a mole hunt dealing with uh, interesting intelligence rivalries and paranoia. Yes. It is very similar to uh, No Way Out, Roger Donaldson's No Way Out. Yes. And, uh, Good call. Which is a remake of The Big Clock, The Wonderful The Big Clock. And also, um, in terms of the liberties it takes with history and sort of deeply extravagant indulgence in leftist paranoia. Yeah, also very reminiscent in some ways of JFK, just in terms of the scope of its imagination. I would say that there is some stuff in this movie that did not happen. <laughs> it is another long film, 140 minutes, and it is, it is relentless. It is, um, I think, quite ultra-violent. The cutting is very good. I will say that one of the sort of foundational stories of the new Korean cinema is obviously that a lot of these directors, and Bong Joon-ho has talked about this a lot, were involved in the democracy protests um, Mm -hmm. in the 1980s, which were violently suppressed by the dictatorship. dictatorship. And that this sort of history is sort of embedded in their extremely skillful and multifaceted, exciting genre films that they Mm -hmm. subsequently made. So something like Memories of Murder. And this is very much, um, and this, that's the historical backdrop for this. This is the 1980s. These people are both, of, like both of our dueling protagonists are very involved in the dictatorship's intelligence apparatus. And this is a very, not a neo-noir in the style of Memories of Murder. It's maybe a little more Hong Kong-y just in the sort of hmm. whiplash reversals and relentless pacing and careening improbabilities and extreme violence yeah so yeah i i i I had a lot of fun with it yeah i mean it it, relentless is is the word for it i mean to the extent of i have to say that the plot was not always totally legible not because i don't think it syncs up but the way the storytelling works it's it's really pithy i guess (laughs) i'd say you know it's the sort of thing where two people wouldn't be in a room 
and they'll say three lines that are supposed to describe what is happening and what happened next and what just happened and it's just a lot very quickly and you're constantly missing what's around the corner and I yeah I can't say I followed every single twist or turn what I will say is to a certain extent I thought that kind of makes sense like you know with like double crossing and espionage and kind of the the different kinds of like plausible deniability and all, all of this that go into this kind of warfare and internecine sort of struggles that kind of makes sense that it doesn't always make sense still uh, i could have used a little more and, and you never think you would say this right but i could have used a little more ex exposition or explanation at times when it's on when it's on netflix you can pause it frequently <laughs> to read wikipedia about um <laughs> About things yeah. like the CIA's involvement in, like the CIA's involvement yeah. in, like the South Korean uh, military dictatorship and intelligence apparatus and things like that, and it'll be. Yes. Well, I think everyone will have a lot of fun. Everyone always has a lot of fun pausing the movie to look up, <laughs> to look up pol political stuff on Wikipedia. That's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah, but that I mean that's almost an aside to me to the pleasure of the film, which is the nearly twisted action filmmaking that's in it, in the sense that it's. You know, I'm glad you brought up No Way Out, which I happen to have watched sort of recently. There's stuff in that movie that's just sort of wrong that happens. <laughs> and there's stuff in this movie that's also very definitely like wrong in a wonderful way. The, the climactic finale is, I, it's like, kind of momentarily turns into a war movie, uh, basically, <laughs> of the least predictable kind. And there's lots like that. And even on a very technical level, how things are shot, you know, there's a kind of semi-stakeout moment from a car that very rapidly turns into a shootout. But usually the filmmaking would cue you to that uh, in terms of basic things that you're, you're barely aware of, whether someone's still in focus in the background or not. And I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but, but the, the, that's, and it's not, so it's all the more shocking when it goes down the way it does. Um, that sounds sort of abstract, but this is just, the filmmaking kind of reminded me a little of another a Korean director, Ryu Sung-wan. Oh, okay, yeah. Who, who just also has a very breakneck, headlong, kind of imaginative as well. It seems like a film improvised at high, very high speed. It seems that way, yeah, but in order to stage some of these things, that they're, yeah. they're, it, it, it also felt like a film that where the, the action units or the people involved in that were kind of given somewhat freer reign to be creative because there's stuff that I think maybe other directors might have said, that's not really going to work. <laughs> That's not really going to be, again, like totally intelligible. And I kind of loved seeing those those sequences. And then, yeah, and the CIA stuff, it's, it's just a sort of movie where things are happening that are not like usually openly admitted mm -hmm. might be occurring. Uh, and this, so that's also great. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is, as you said, a movie you might uh, have to retrace or pause or recover from at certain points. So there you have Hunt. Uh, that, uh, that could be the last film we, we talk about. I didn't mean to preempt your talking about... Oh, I think we can we can make our way to a film that I'm sure okay. we'll have a lot of fun talking about on this podcast. Stay tuned for that one. Yes, and we'll leave you all hanging as to which film that is. But we'll, we'll wrap there. And Mark, thank you again for being generous of your time. Well, thank you for inviting me to the top of the pyramid <laughs> yes. to, to gaze down. <laughs> at all of this splendor. Yeah, we are now going to flip the pyramid, but uh, we'll be right back. And yeah, stay tuned. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. This episode was co-produced by John Gaudio. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.